Hello, hello. I'm Fiona. I'm Casey. Welcome to our deep dive on Fathoms 5 by Penumbra. We were very lucky to tie Jess down to have a chat in which we took a fair amount of time to go in great depth into the details of Fathoms 5, which is one of her tentpole works, I would say. But one that not a lot of people have read. It was fun diving into. Yes. And it was set in 2020. So now is a fun time to go back to it. I do have a small apology to make. When we recorded this, I was about five days into COVID. So if it sounds a bit nasally, that's why. You sounded wonderful. I hope everybody enjoys this great discussion that we had. So for many of us, she needs no introduction, but I'm going to do it anyway. In the echelons of X-Files fan fiction, she is without a doubt at the top. Please welcome our guest, author of Fathoms 5 and other notable MSR favorites like Contact High, Parabiosis, and Huevelman's on the track. I don't know how to say it, so I'm just going to go with a little extra flair. Penumbra, also known as the Mythopoeic, and or Jessica. Welcome to the podcast, Jess. Thank you. Hi. I'm Casey and or Slippin' Mickeys on AO3, Twitter, and Tumblr. And I'm Fiona, also known as Dana Scully Makes Me Feel Old Chopsy Turvy on AO3, just to keep it succinct. And call me Scully on Twitter. Hi, you guys. Thank you, honestly, so much for giving up your time. You have been exceedingly generous, I would say, lately, giving people your time. So I appreciate taking even more of it. It's my pleasure. And this was, well, just a big excuse I picked up, really, to do a deep dive into Fathoms 5, just because I think it really deserved a serious, a serious analysis. I think it's absolutely packed. I've read it several times now, and every time I read it, I keep pulling more and more out of it. Thankfully, you agreed to uh, sit down and chat with us in depth about it. But first, is it okay just to get you to do a bit of an intro, if you wouldn't mind? How would you intro Fathoms 5? At the time, it wasn't a popular stance to think that Scully was immortal. I think that among older files who had watched the series from the beginning, it was given a little more credence, I think, because we had, we had been sitting on that Clyde Bruckman comment for years, and it, you know, it seemed ridiculous. But then suddenly Tythons came along and it was like this puzzle piece, you know, and it wasn't like I really believe she was immortal, but, you know, it was a possibility. And um, so I started working on this story and then I Want to Believe came out and then that sort of nullified the whole thing because obviously she wasn't immortal. So at that point, I stopped working on it and just sort of put it away. I kind of gave up on it. But I did a poll, uh, I just pulled up my old live journal and I had done a poll on Scully and immortality and it was maybe about 50-50, you know, most people wouldn't give it any credence at all. And I honestly don't know that I do either, but I just thought, what if? And then it was fun to just look at it that way. Absolutely. And I think that's how I always saw it. It is, it's really a meditation on, yeah, but what if you were immortal? And what if the person that that happened to was Agent Dana Scully? Or 
regular Dennis Kelly at this point in the story. <laughs> I think it's very well executed, which we will definitely get into. So when did you actually start writing it, Jess? Around the time the series ended, I think. And that, I had to look this up this morning, but that was 2002. The Truth aired. You know, it's a dim memory now. And Fabulous Five came out in 2009, right? Yes. You published on LiveJournal in 2009. So I don't know. I'm sure I I started it and stopped it several times. And to be honest, I didn't want to write it. And every night when I was falling asleep, I would get images in my head of this family in California. And you know how when you are a writer, when you just get the faintest hint of a scene, you have to pay attention to it because usually it's something good. But at first it's just shadowy, you know. It's just barely the germ of an idea. So every night I would think about this family and it was the Mulders and the Scullies and they had their kids. And I'd think, I'm not going to write that. That's baby fic. I'm not going to write that. (laughs) (laughs) But of course, I started writing it down and, you know, it went from there. And then I did, I did put it away and give up on it at one point. And then I showed it to Kyber because I was really working on what became uh, Wavelman's on the track, which again, I don't know how to pronounce either. Yes, thank God. Glad it's not just me. Was at that point it was called Jam Tart after that album poem. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm a jam tart. I'm a bargain basement. I was really struggling with that story, as you know. It was a mess. It was a one of those mythology messes that could tie you in a knot. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah. Kyber was looking at that, and he didn't like it at all. He said it was so mopey, and everybody, <laughs> you know, they were stood <laughs> up, and they're moping, and he, it was driving him crazy reading it. So I finally, I pulled out this Fathoms 5 and showed him that, and he said, this is great. Finish this. So he, I would totally give him credit for pushing that story into existence. Interesting. That's great. Are, just out of curiosity, are you still in touch with Kyber? No. He's one of my favorite authors. No? Oh, that's too bad. I know. I, I lost touch with him years ago. Mm-hmm. Oh, no shame. He's because He sounds like he's really fundamental in a lot of your craft. He really cut us out, I think. Oh. I mean, he, he walked away. Oh. He was doing the X-File thing as well. Mm-hmm. As I was reading, there's a couple of clues in there, which to me really, really place it. Probably when you're writing it, I was thinking, oh, this has got to be about 2001, 2002. And it was the Ozzy Osbourne kids reference. Oh, yeah. I watched that series. And Castaway. Castaway, I love. That's one of my favorite movies. Wilson! When you watch Castaway, it's about someone whose life stops while the world goes on around it. You know, time keeps going on, but it stops for him. And that concept fascinated me. And then if you watch the extras on it, they talked about how your personality splits when you're alone. And you when you talk to yourself, you're actually, it's two different sides talking to each other. So I used that concept with Scully in Fathoms 5. That uh, she felt like there was two of her, almost. Yes, the hermits that talk to themselves. Yes, yes. Yeah. It's, I guess that's a common thing. <laughs> This is it. And I thought that reading that, I thought, oh, this, yeah, Castaway, this is it. This is Scully, isn't it? In a, in mm-hmm. a different way. 
symbolically. But yes, to me, because I just in 2001, 2002, I was living in California and I was watching the Ozzy Osbourne and remember watching the Castaway on DVD. And um, so when I was reading it, I thought, oh, I I just picturing exactly when this was being written for the first time. It was really hard for me to think about the future. I just don't, I can't imagine, you know, like technology, what's that, that's going to look like. And to my mind, 2020 was so far out there. I mean, it was like, yeah. (laughs) So, and of course it came and passed very quickly, but yeah, it seemed like, you know, a hundred years away when I wrote that. I just randomly picked a number, you know, and then actually COVID has really made Fathoms 5 obsolete in a lot of ways. It's funny. I think that I have notes. I was like, things which wouldn't really happen in 2020, like Mulder would not drink from that beer bottle he found. He would not drink from a random <laughs> bottle of beer. COVID. What? Really? Mulder? Yeah, he just, he picks up like an unclaimed bottle of beer in the house, to be fair. Oh, oh because of COVID, sure. Well, not in 2020. I was like, COVID. Well, yeah, there's just no COVID. Yeah. Can you imagine California in 2020? Well, Casey was there, but... I I was going to say, I can. I remember it very well. Yes. I was curious because I know you published in 2009. But yeah, it was sort of evident that you had written a parts of it before then. Especially when like Mulder's reading a newspaper, like an actual newspaper. I was like, oh, wow. (laughs) Oh my gosh, you're right. And nobody, not a one person is on a smartphone. You're right. You're right. I mean, I I didn't think it through really. And then like she had, Arable had an iPod and I, I just called it the music thingy. Cause I mean, who knows what they're going to be called. Oh, of course. But yeah, they didn't even have a TV. Yeah. Is there anything looking through the lens of 2022 that you would have written differently or done differently looking back? Just because you had it set in 2020? Yeah, because I didn't realize how bad the smartphone thing was going to (laughs) get. I didn't have a smartphone in 2009. You know, I had a phone phone. So I didn't realize how bad that was going to get where everybody's just on this phone all the time. But that would have made for a a very dull fic. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And I hate that anyway. It doesn't detract is what I'm saying. In any way. It's not that realistic, really, because those kids would have been way more technological. But but it's a beautiful AU. Actually, that's one of the things I really liked about it. I really liked thinking of you thinking ahead to 2020. And I first read this in 2020. And I thought, it's this, just this weird position of having nostalgia for how we used to maybe think about the future. Or It was sad because you thought, well, actually... William probably wouldn't have been able to go to Oxford. They might not even have had in-person classes. Oh, sure, sure. He would have sure. been caught up in that generation. I regretted sending him to Oxford. I think that was a little unwieldy. And also the Oxford people hate it when you mention Oxford in an X-Files fan fiction, and they were all over that. Oh, I did it wrong. So. Oh, <laughs> Oh, really? Oh, as in people who have been to Oxford? Yeah, I literally picked the wrong college for him to go to. I think I picked All Souls because that's an X-Files reference. And they were like, no, of course. no, no, he couldn't go there. So there's no physics in All Souls. <laughs> right, right. You know, and I thought I had it figured out, but I didn't, obviously. Yeah, I do appreciate, though, that all the characters in it were so present throughout the whole thing. Everybody was really present and i appreciate reading that you know where everybody's with you and you're with them 
and everybody's yeah. with each other, if that makes any kind of sense. Well, I think Mulder and Scully's parents would, you know, be really an- not anti-technology, but they'd be really, you know, familial. And I think that's what I drew arable to that family was that they were real close. And, you know, they didn't sit on their phones. They, they hung out together. They, oh, yes. They partied together. I mean, I've known families like this, you know, that drink with their kids or whatever. <laughs> Yeah. And actually sit around talking. Yeah, they sit around and talk and they're funny and they have a good time. And, you know, that's what I wanted. I'm going to try and structure the conversation slightly, if that is okay. Let's really do this deep dive then. So we're, it's like meditation on Scully's possible immortality. We're not saying it's definitely true, but what if this is a nice look at how things might be? I say nice, Um, a very moving look, but it opens with the suicide, the really graphic suicide, really shocking. I think it actually possibly puts some people off from reading it. Would you say that's true, Jess? Yes, definitely. And I needed more of a disclaimer on it. It was, it was really graphic. I didn't feel like it was that graphic when I wrote it. And I had to research it, which was hard. Yeah, it was clear that you had. It was very realistic. Not that I know anything about how it all works. I did learn that women don't usually shoot themselves in the face, that men don't care, they do. So that's why I had her do that. I have been fairly suicidal at times. And at that point, I was in a pretty rough spot. And so I had thought about it. That must have been hard. I wasn't going to shoot myself. That's not how I would have done it. But I mean, I can relate to that, getting to that point. Mm. So it was actually cathartic for me to write. It felt good. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Which is creepy, but true. Well, I know in the past you've spoken about taking your suffering and using it in your art. Mm -hmm. And it's very effective. Yeah, I think we should all do that. We all need to do that as writers. It's very useful. Yeah. And I'm sorry that you went through that. Oh, it's okay. I think it really elevates this, though. I think because you're willing to really go there. You're willing to go there in the text. Yeah, there's a truth to it that feels real. Yeah. And it is shocking. And I've had people say to me, because I have done a lot of recommending this, like, oh, you must read Fathers 5. And somebody was just like, I'm sorry, like in the first five lines, like Scully shoots herself in the, in the mouth, like, no, hard no. Yes. <laughs> so I can understand if what you're reading X-Files fanfic for is, you know, that enjoyment, the love of the character. Why would you want to put yourself through that? I guess I'm a strange person because in being gutted, in being so shocked and moved that was it then I was hooked I had to read I had to see well what the hell is going on here well it was an experiment it wasn't you know a real suicide it was an experiment yes that is also extremely true do you think Jessica in the world of Fathoms 5 do you think Scully had tried other ways of suicide do you think that she had gone through things proving that she was immortal and this was sort of the last gasp if this works i'm definitely gonna live forever or do you think this was her first and last attempt possibly but it seemed to me that that was like the first time she like set out to just really see yeah that's a good point and i probably should have put more of that in there 
But it strikes me that Mulder and William both realized that it had come to this point and weren't surprised by it. I mean, they were horrified, but they weren't surprised. Yeah. Because Felig tries everything, and he tells Scully all about everything that he tried. Uh-huh. If somebody was trying to argue, like, oh, this fic shouldn't be written, but you think but that's right there in the, in the text, in the episode, in the origin story with Felig. Mm-hmm. That's his whole deal, isn't it? He's like, oh, I've tried all these different ways. So, yeah, it happens to Scully. And possibly this was the first time Scully tried it, and that she would go on to continue, you know, throwing herself off bridges or whatever, but... Scully was built on that previous research that Felig had done because that's how she thinks, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It makes complete sense. It doesn't come out of nowhere. And of course, as a literary device, you should start your story with the hook, shouldn't you? With the thing that draws the shocking moment, say. The media read. Yeah. And I remember reading it for the first time. I hadn't read the summary. I had No one had recommended it to me. I think I discovered it on LiveJournal. And I hadn't read it before. This was post-revival. So it was shocking to me, but in a, like, well, there's a lot more to this. There's no major character deaths. Clearly, Scully's going to be in the rest of this. So I went into it with like a, oh, okay, let's see what happens next. But it is shocking in a, in a good way. At least it was for me. So I, I read it totally blind. And then every time I read it, it affects me differently and I think about it differently, which is interesting. And I've probably read it four times now, most recently, you know, in preparations for this. Uh-huh. But it is, I think literature, it, it should move you. And that was so moving. That's your jumping off point, isn't it, for the whole story? Just emotionally, that's a gut punch, but then it's propelling you, okay, into the rest of everything. I want to be deeply horrified sometimes. It's also, in a way, an insult to her family because she betrayed them of in course. that moment. She went. Oh. You know, she didn't tell them what she was going to do. Oh, big time. She could have died, you know. They never would have seen her again. Yeah. yeah, which is why then Mulder gets so angry. But you can't see why she would do it. I was reading some comments on somebody else's live journal, I think, where they were discussing Fathom's Five. <laughs> somebody was like, oh, like, boo-hoo, Scully's immortal. Like, what's her problem? <laughs> and I thought, uh, okay. Somebody was like, very kindly trying to walk through. <laughs> but actually, it's it's in the text. In Tythonus, I mean, the whole point of Tythonus is that it's terrible to be immortal. And you lose the love of your life. You know, he forgot his wife's name. It was devastating. Did they not watch that episode? It's clearly something that you, your, your life at some point is something you need to rid yourself of because what's the point of it otherwise, right? And that's the point of Tuck Everlasting, which is, was a huge influence on this work. I wish I would have known. I would have watched it. No, no, don't watch it. Read it. It's a young adult novel by Natalie Babbitt. It's an excellent book. Have you read it, Casey? I have not, but I'm just writing it down right now. Yeah, you know, it's a short little young adult novel, but it's a wonderfully written book about immortality and how you don't want to be immortal, how life is precious. So anyway, that had a huge influence on Scully, on the point of view in this story. These are the themes of stories about immortality in our culture, that it is terrible. So we were reading The Immortal, was that the um, Jorge Luis Borges short story? Oh, we read that, oh, cool. and obviously the Tythonus, Tithonus, 
one of those pronunciations. The poem, uh-huh. the um, Tennyson, Tennyson poem, of course, yes. from the myth. Yes. These are all stories about how it's actually pretty dreadful to be immortal. Like, sounds great uh-huh. at first. Uh, as the years drag on, and, not um, so hot. The picture of Dorian Gray. Yes. I read that while I was writing this. So that's what, where the videotape in the attic came from. <laughs> oh, yes. I love that. And yes, you had said to me previously about Fathoms 5 that it was one of the first times you really put a lot of symbolism <laughs> into a text. Maybe too much, yes. I don't know. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Let's try and delve some out. No such thing. Yes, let's go into that. And Moby Dick also. So I was actually reading this this morning about Moby Dick and immortality. And I mean, no, nobody in Moby Dick is actually immortal, but, you know, the white whale symbolizes the afterlife, maybe, or uh, something. I don't know. But anyway, Tesh Tigo is one of the, the harpooners, like Queequeg. Of course. <laughs> I figured Scully would keep of naming course. your dogs like that. Amazing. Those Dagu, actually. Didn't pick up on that. I'm mad at myself. They keep calling him Tash. But oh, the name Tashtigo, it does come up. It does come up in the name. I should have looked that one up. But, okay, so bringing us back to the ocean and things, it's the ship is obviously really symbolic in the whole thing. And I think, for me, mostly, it's obviously symbolic of her father. Yes. And of all the things that she will live to see lost. Many things in her past, which we will get to. But yes. at the beginning... She's thinking of the ship, isn't she? So uh-huh. let me just read from the text. As she kills herself, yeah. Yes, uh-huh. when she's at the morgue. Yeah. So she says, yeah, it was the ship she kept thinking of, trying to keep herself detached. It was the desolation of the miles and miles of ocean, and it was the emptiness of the ship, the dying ship, unpiloted, plunging on dead through the waters. So Scully, basically, right? Being She's having to go on and on and on in life. She's the ancient mariner, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. I mean, it, her relationship with her father was so beautiful, you know, and beyond the sea, the things he says to her, you know, from the afterlife are really wonderful. I mean, he seemed like <laughs> kind of an annoying guy. He, yes, well, he obviously looms large. Okay, well, that kind of brings me on to one of the first kind of major things, themes that I was looking at. So in that Warhead story, The Immortal, one of the things he talks about is, okay, so it says... In Rome, I spoke with philosophers who felt that to draw out the span of a man's life was to draw out the agony of his dying and multiply the number of his deaths. And I think we get so many of Scully's deaths, so not her own, unfortunately for her, but all the different losses that she goes through. So, for example, what is Simulda says she's hypnotized because of the ship and she's thinking of the fact that her father's ship is about to be destroyed. Stripped. Uh-huh. Yeah. So she's lost her father, yes, of course, but then maybe she was, you know, she had that connection to the material things that were connected to him, but she's losing them. And she remembered the ship coming into Miramar uh, Naval Base when she was a little girl. Mm. You know, it would be yeah. gone for months and then would come into port. So, you know, it symbolized her father to her. Yeah. Oh, of course. He was the captain, wasn't he? Yeah, he was captain. Uh Yeah. 
you know, Mulder's apartment functions in the same way, of oh, course. Yeah. When she realizes <laughs> it's already gone. I know. And she has such a reaction. That was horrible. How could I do that? Oh, because it's horrible and this is wonderful. It's perfect, isn't Why it? Why would works. they knock down Hegel Place? I mean, I know. But this is it. Obviously, Scully's devastated because I think we do this, don't we, as people? We get emotional attachments to objects, Absolutely. which are not really emotional attachments to those objects. Yes. They're really emotional attachments to people. Yes. But sure. the synecdoche of the object is comforting. They represent, really. Of course. Yeah. When she gets back, so she sleeps off the suicide attempt, gets home, and William's rebuilding the wall that Arable's knocked down. Mm-hmm. And she's upset by that as well, of course, isn't she? It's all these... Because Mulder built it. <laughs> right. Exactly. That hits his his little mark on the world, and that's being chipped away at. So she's obviously starting to get really overly attached to these things, as you might, because that is actually all that she would be left with. Mm-hmm. She can't let go of Mulder yet, but she's sort of preparing herself for the time when she does have to. And that's why she says she doesn't want another dog because dogs are too, you know, you get too attached to them. (laughs) Yeah. It's just too painful. Is that why at the end she says, you know, towards the end, she says, I think it's time to move again, to try to separate herself from some of these memories and things. Oh, I think she's hiding. Is is it not because she's going into hiding, like Age of Adeline? She has to keep moving around. Yeah, they have to keep moving. But she, yeah, she was talking about going back to school. Yeah. To me, I got the impression because it's when she's upset, isn't she? And she says, "Oh, we're going to have to move again." Mm-hmm. And she mentions about going back to school, but she's also talking about the fact that they've had to move to California because of her. I don't know. What do you think? Because to me, I really thought, oh, they're just having to go into hiding because. The only people from her past that she sees is Grandma Scully, well, uh-huh. yeah, Maggie, and Marty Glenn, who is blind. That's so right. That's yeah. the only person Scully is able to see. Yeah, I think you're right that they they do keep moving, and it's funny to me that they went to California to hide. But anyway, I mean, if they could go anywhere <laughs> in the world. Why would you go there? But so why set it in California? <laughs> I don't know. You know, I didn't really think it through. I just, that was where it, that story started for me. And <laughs> Yeah, because it's, a, it's a, such a sense of place that when you're reading it, especially as someone who lives in Los Angeles, as I do, and I know Fiona lived there for a couple of years, you capture it remarkably <laughs> well. Have you lived in Los Angeles? Have no, you lived in California? I, I've or is driven it- past it on the freeway and I've read a lot of Steinbeck. <laughs> you know, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> You know, Chris, I researched what kind of bushes grow there and stuff. Right. But, you know, I remember that feel of the smog. No, I don't have any experience with California. I really thought the same thing. I think that's another reason I really loved it. Yeah, because you write it remarkably well. Yeah, but you don't read a lot of X-Files set in California. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I love reading like about the Mansons and the old days in, in Hollywood. I've read a lot about that. And, you know, like the Day of the Locust and I love Chinatown, you know, that kind of thing. So it's a fun place to, it's sort of that noir Hollywood thing. And I don't don't even really get into it in this story, I don't think, but except for there's a Tom Petty reference about the vampires. Yeah. (laughs) Which is really dumb because I realized later that I forgot all about three 
when Mulder comes oh. to, to L.A. I oh, mean, right. I literally forgot about the three. Oh, yeah. How funny. Where did you picture the house? Speci- I was trying to figure out specifically where in the hills did they live? Which hills? Do you, do you know? Yeah. Did you have a picture? No, I don't know. I can't, you know, I had to figure it out. I looked at a map at one point and just put them way out in the middle of nowhere, you know, way up the canyons where you get up on the hills, I guess. Yeah. But it was just little things like talking about the, the smell of forest fire. Casey, you were saying about the raincoats. Yeah, it was like the raincoats in the attic because so you don't need them. So they're going to England and they're going to need raincoats, right? <laughs> right. But they're not readily at hand because you don't need raincoats in Los in Angeles, California. generally. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. No, I loved it. And especially to me as someone who came from England when we have like, not serious weather, it's but always cold actual in weather. England. I lived there for a couple of years and it was always cold. <laughs> like arable, like Mulder says of arable. Yeah. <laughs> California, not so much, which I, again, this sense of place that I really noticed, you know, they missed clear delineation between seasons. And I strongly remember having that feeling of like, oh, I really, I really miss like a good thunderstorm. And oh yeah, like winter, like winter just doesn't happen. And actually, even though I am not a massive fan of winter, uh, I hate being cold. I am always cold. It just, you suddenly realize just to have that, the changes, how can you appreciate summer if you don't not have it. The East Coast is so beautiful, you know, with the definite seasons. And my parents lived in Maine for years. So, you know, I saw a lot of that. And Mulder, you know, spent his whole life on the East Coast. So I think it would have been very different for him. It is. It's the one thing you miss the most, moving from the Midwest where there are heinous seasons, moving <laughs> to California. It's just... It's horrible. I mean, like, you're like, well, there are no leaves are changing. Everything is just the same all the time. Yeah, I think Mulder would have been very affected by that. But isn't that like Scully? It's living in California for It's like this endless life of like, yes. the, I will never change. Oh, you're right. I think I thought of that originally. And I, yes, that it was perpetual. Uh-huh. Yes. yes, perpetual youth. In fact, yes, she talks perpetual about that. Youth. Yeah, yeah the plastic youth. Yeah, that's, that's what she has. Well, I'm smarter than I realized. <laughs> it's brilliant. Oh, and we're we're just starting. We are just starting. So we get all these all these little deaths, and even at this point in the story, we're starting to get the death of her present as well, isn't she? Like she realizes, oh, it's the last family dinner. You know, William's going away. Yeah, maybe they're going to have to move. Uh-huh. Matthew's off to Big Sur. Uh-huh. Arabel's going to Cambridge. It's not only the death of all these things in her past, but yeah, the death of even this moment now is becoming past. That's far more poignant for her, you know. I love that conversation they have about all the cultural things that they don't make anymore. Where they're talking about <laughs> cherry coke, <laughs> Pepsi One, Tab, Mihai. <laughs> Yes, Mihai's an old, you know, like sarsaparilla, an old soda from the 50s, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> brilliant. And I love that Arable makes that joke, like, oh, my God, remember the model tea? God, you're so ancient. Uh, <laughs> that's great. That's brilliant. Uh, yeah, which is really just kind of shows, yeah, kids. Got no respect. I don't think Arable was familiar with what was going on, right? 
I think the three of them kept that from her, from her and Matthew. So it was sort of a yeah. family secret, I believe. Although I did wonder when she watched X Cops with them, would she? Because she was maybe she was just staring at Mulder and how good looking he was. She was <laughs> there, just like, hmm, Scully kind of looks exactly the same. Yeah, I, <laughs> I mean, Scully, I assume you know would change. You know, her hair is probably different and stuff. To be honest, I'm not sure Gillian Anderson herself has really aged. I was about to say, I really don't think Gillian Anderson has really aged all that much. So oh, no, no, no. Believable. Not, not to imply that, but... Okay, in seriousness, no, you're right. She doesn't know what's going on. I think that, yeah, she couldn't get over Mulder's hotness in X-Cops. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she was like, oh, we're Scully in that. I didn't, I hadn't noticed. I don't think she was looking at Scully. <laughs> He looked amazing. Now that we're that. talking about Arable a little bit, who or what did Arable represent to you? I'm not sure, but I believe she and William had sort of a Mulder Scully relationship where you're not, are they or aren't they? Yeah. You know, so that was kind of funny to me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just kind of to play with that. Yeah. I, I just basically wanted a couple extra characters so the family was bigger. And she just sort yeah. of wandered in. And I don't know. She wasn't really me, but she reminded me of kind of myself at that age. You know, a, a real dork. And I, I would have loved Mulder more than any of them. You know, if I, like she did. She loved Mulder more than any of them. And she was really there yeah. for Mulder more than anything, I think. Although she and William were close, too. Yeah. So, yeah, he would be irresistible as a dad, you know, type. <laughs> And her name came from a book by Jonah Aiken. Fiona, do you remember, like, Wolves of Willoughby Chase, Black Hearts and Battersea? Do you remember those? They're a British kids series. Oh, no, I don't know. They were really, really good. I read them over and over as a kid. They're by Jonah Aiken. And anyway, one of the later ones had a girl named Arable, which is kind of a weird name, meaning, you know, fertile. So anyway, that's where I got it. Well, terrible, arable, and the the, the loom, loom of doom <laughs> was one of my favorite lines. <laughs> I had a goose named Arable too at one point, uh, an African goose. So anyway, it's just a name that I've had a kicking around for a while. I like it. No, and I did really like that. I picked up on that that we had this. It was like the cycle happening again, almost that you had arable was Scully to Williams. Molded. There was quite a bit of stuff that was cut out. I, just, I wish I hadn't cut it out. Um, it's on the live journal and it explained more about Erbil's mom and her situation. Erbil's mom was a, a nurse at Cedar Sinai or something. Her mom didn't have time for her, you know, because she was a nurse, like a night nurse on the pediatric ward, ironically. At Cedar Sinai. So, you know, the the Mulder family was sort of helping raise her in a way. Yeah. You know, the way you do. You always have extra kids you're raising. <laughs> it seems yeah. like. And they need you. You don't want to admit it, but they need yeah. you. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, sometimes you're the kid that needs someone and they're the cool family, you know, you're drawn to. Mm -hmm. I think we've all been in that situation, too. So. We would all like to be the spare kid being raised by the Mulder Scullies. <laughs> I like that would Scully's not? kind of a hard ass, though. She's, you know, she's not that fun. <laughs> yeah. That's what's fun about Scully is her coldness. I don't know why. And it's what's so wonderful um, about seeing, oh, about imagining Mulder 
getting beneath that. You know what I mean? Yes. It, that's such a big part of the draw. We watched that for a long yeah. time, you know. And Scully's interesting in that she is vulnerable also and, you know, has a lot of feeling in her. So that coldness is balanced by, you know, something inside. And usually with cold women, there there is, you know, a lot of stuff going on in the background. They usually have a lot of problems. <laughs> and Scully does. Yeah. Kind of coming back to these ideas of all these deaths that she's experiencing, I think the the saddest death was to me, the death of her selfhood in, like, and her singularity, her brilliance. So that bit, Jess, where you're writing, the need to keep a low profile had grown with every passing year, but that she'd learned to tone down her brightness. She had learned to be mediocre. That's so heartbreaking, yeah. Having to make herself less. Yeah, it's the antithesis yeah. of Scully. But she also uh, did that, in a sense, when she joined the X-Files and... Um, hooked up with Mulder, she basically threw away her career there, you know, in a sense. She kind of made herself a joke, really. So she had done that before. But then she became the world's premier, what is it, the world's preeminent cryptozoologist or something. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. It's true. And I love that Mulder was writing that book about their lives together on the X-Files because it's all classified still, but, you know, he's trying to, to write it. Oh, I love, this is the theme to me. So immortality, of course, so Scully has real immortality. But I think what comes through a lot of the text is the other stabs at immortality that we can actually make. And that's what Mulder's doing with his books, as you write about, that it's like x-raying his shadow to the wall, that he's, you know, that's his legacy, isn't it? Yes. That's his immortality. Uh Uh-huh, exactly. It's through the books. And then after he dies, William will read these books again and see how great they early are, you know. He was just too young to really get it, but you'll see how special Mulder is. And to have some writing as well, like that's such an intimate thing to be able to read from someone's mind is something they've written down. It's such a a view in. So if you, yeah, to have a book like that written by your father. Was there anything to the title of Mulder's books? I was curious. Or did you just come up with them? Where did they come from? Prosper Athena. Prosper Athena. No, it's a total fakeroo. No, it just sounded, you know, missy. Sounded cool. So, of course, the ultimate death that obviously Scully is trying to avoid or mentally trying to avoid is obviously the inevitable loss of Mulder and William, which is the thing that fairly wonder about, isn't it, of course? Mm-hmm. Love lasts 75 years. You don't want to be around when it's gone. Well, Siri, forget his name. Like oh, yeah, I know. You know, that's horrible. I was thinking that. That's kind of like the biggest tragedy, actually, to me, of this whole story, is that in focusing on this loss that will come, these layers are building up, as you write. So she's she's disconnecting herself from what is in front of her at that time because of the depression, the being irretrievably sunken in deep despair that she's going through, just thinking ahead of like, oh, this will be terrible. And she's making it worse. And she's... She's already missing everything she's going to miss. Yeah, she's not in the moment. And she's, right, and it's heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. And this is what you were saying about this betrayal, Jess, like the fact that she has actually undertaken this drastic act and not telling them, like, okay, listen, I think this is the, you know, obviously you wouldn't. How could, You know, like she said, she doesn't want to admit that actually maybe she doesn't really want to come home. Uh-huh. On some level, she does want it to work. Yeah. Uh-huh. 
But I think she knows it, it won't, which is why <laughs> she's willing to try it. She's a scientist. Yeah. I mean, she had to do it scientifically. To me, actually, I was thinking there's absolutely no way that she thinks it's going to work because there's the guilt she feels about, oh, she's ruined William's week, you know, his last week before he goes to Oxford and the shame she feels. And I was thinking, what? There's no way she thought it was going to work then because she, if she's thinking about that now, surely maybe she would not have done that then. But is there ever really a good time to possibly... I'm not sure what the impetus was to do it right then anyway or why she didn't wait till they got home from England. But it was, she was thinking of the ship, right? It was the, that was... Oh, the ship. Maybe that just pushed her to that point. But also to me, I was thinking, well, I think she's just also depressed. Like, thinking of symbolism, I was thinking, well, this black dog, is this the black dog of depression? Oh, that's a good point. So you just added a layer that... <laughs> no. <laughs> I literally did not think of. Oh, maybe I don't did, know if I heard that term back then, even. Uh, yeah, she's just depressed, I was thinking. And of course, so she's not maybe thinking right. She's so rude to that poor dog. I know. He loves her. I know. But it's brilliant. It is brilliant just to see her turning away. But there's, we do get a moment where she says, doesn't she? She sort of looks at the back of the dog's head and just has that clutch of love. So she does love it. The back, the back of a dog's head is so vulnerable and little. You know, they have this little skull. <laughs> you, know, you always feel that way when you look at the back of their little head. <laughs> I thought it was interesting thematically that we also we have all of Scully's little losses, but Mulder too, he is losing things like his youth. He talks about his, he has to wear his knee brace. He's not slowing down, even though he should, as William. He puts on his glasses lanes. to look at the remote. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Well, what's really funny is we did get to see that. We actually did at least have little moments of that in the revival. So I really liked that, that you had imagined seeing them older. And at the time, I think we would never have imagined that we would actually get to revisit them older. Yeah, I really liked those little touches. That, and then being able to think, oh, yeah, we really did see him like with his glasses that he was getting older. It was kind of fun That's to see right. him in that capacity. But yeah, he's thinking of it then. Obviously, you only had in your mind the Mulder and Scully that we knew in their youth up to, what, 2008 as a maximum. That's kind of, I guess, the, like the platonic ideal of Mulder and Scully, isn't it? That That's like the image that we have of them. Like he's looking at the picture of them, isn't he? Mulder and Scully, FBI. Yes. Those yes. ex-cop days. Uh-huh. But it's, he's, you know, he's losing that. He's at the point where he's thinking about his mortality. Like he's talking about where he's going to get buried, isn't he? Oh. He's at that age. Where, uh, yeah, down in the spiral thing. Uh-huh. Yes, next to the snake. <laughs> the snake and the dog. Yeah. And also, I thought it's really interesting to see, like, how the kids don't think he's cool. To us, it's like, he's fucks freaking Mulder. All oh, right. They're just like, oh, God, Dad. I know. In in fact, I like how William's like this with both of them, that he's, you know, impatient, like, oh, they're just touching my face. Like, oh, what I would not give. You know, does that to you. You're like, oh. Yeah, teenage boys hate that. (laughs) I thought William was very tolerant. Yes, he was. I really thought this, the piece really captures something about having children. I do not have my own children, Mm -hmm. but it felt very real Mm. 
just to kind of see William through his parents' eyes and also to see they're his parents through William's eyes. Imagine if your parents were Mulder and Scully and you're just like, oh, they're so annoying. He's not really a very realistic teenager, to be honest. Um, <laughs> he's too easy, really. They're usually not that easy. But, <laughs> no, but I, I also think that Mulder and Scully's kid wouldn't be normal in that in the kind of out there X-Files kind of way, but in a older than his years, like that's how I always picture him in my head is just an old soul. A very bright kid. Right. Yeah. Overachiever. Yeah. Yeah. But Fiona made a good point. You capture the motherhood so well in my eye. I mean, just in just the little tiny details that I loved, like Scully always running her fingers through the ducktails when his hair gets too long. I mean, like I do that constantly. I'm just like, just get that little. You always have your hands on them and they're like, ah. (laughs) That is motherhood right there and having a boy is is different than having a girl too yeah. i don't know as a mom they're i don't know boys are just they're magical and i i have one of yeah. each so but i and i love them both i'm closer to my daughter in a lot of ways but having a boy is really special producing a boy child when you're a girl is is a weird feeling that's interesting yeah that it that comes from you and is of you but like as Malta says that is not you that it's genetically a bit so different. Yeah, parenthood is really trippy. It's really strange. What's interesting is, so you were talking about the Fathers Five that you kind of initially wrote it, you were like having all these images of this family living in California, but also it's the fic where Scully shoots herself in the mouth. So it's this devastating fic, but also has all these beautiful family moments in it like it's quite the dichotomy that it's it's so cozy it's so domestic it's almost weird how black and white it is too like you said it's so violent and then it's so just fluffy i'm not sure if that works really oh it absolutely works i don't think you can have fluff and maybe this is just me showing my taste i can't take any kind of fluff without a little bit of angst or dark to balance it out. And I think that's what the X-Files is too. Like you can't, you can have these really dark episodes and these really comedic fun episodes, but without each other, they don't, there's no balance. You're right. And that's, I think what made the show great. And that's to me, that's what makes a great fan fiction was I need to see them both. That's what makes me feel good. Yeah. And they underlie each other. Some. Fluff, it's like, I can see why people write it. It's, it's wish fulfillment, isn't it? You you just want to see them happy. They lose their personalities. To be recognizable, they have to suffer a little because that's just Mulder and Scully. But I loved how you described Mulder and Scully parenting that William was that 18-year X-file, that the way they, they team up on it and they bring their personal skills <laughs> to <true>. it. <laughs> this is exactly how it would go down. They would. They'd be looking at each other across the room, giving each other that look, you know, that wordless yeah. communication. Yeah. <laughs> you take this one. This is your department. Uh-huh. <laughs> she just give him a look. There's a part in that when Mulder says the worst thing he's ever done was to take back William from the Vandekamps. How did you see that going down? Or did you just sort of try to like skim over it and just to get to the meat? Yeah, I, you know, my, I skimmed over it, but basically they... There was a point there when they got back together and she'd have given the kid up for adoption when I thought, okay, now they're going to go get William, right? And then the story can end. I mean, that was like the logical conclusion. That's what we all wanted. Chris Carter. 
So in my mind, hey, I'm, you know, that's what happened. I don't know how they did it. And, you know, they must have done it with legitimacy so that, you know, they weren't hunted for taking the kids. Right. They must have re-adopted them or something. I don't know. Yeah. Well, in my mind, Mulder had never signed away his parental rights. Like he wasn't there when Scully gave him up for adoption. So Maybe they that, just in my head, sat down and there's a loophole. With the camps, you know, said, "Hey, it's our kid, and we're yeah. taking him." But you know, that would have been a horrible thing because he was a cute little baby. <laughs> totally. Yeah. The conversation that Mulder has with William about he talks about that, and he immediately brings up Maps, the Art Spiegelman graphic novel about the Holocaust and there's the story in there where that aunt say that when it becomes clear that the Jews are being sent to Auschwitz and they're all going to be murdered, that she kills herself and their three children. Which way so that they they don't get I believe caught a true by their story. Taken. Yes. Yes, it is. I was reading about it. It's horrifying. In your mind, was Mulder suggesting that Scully, because he said, oh you know, that aunt presumed like she presumed, so mm-hmm. she took all of the chance out of the situation and she said so the children were definitely dead, whereas maybe they would have had a chance at Auschwitz. It, was that something, were you saying, like, was Scully in a way that aunt, like, yeah, presuming that William is in danger? Scully had assumed the same thing and taken it into her own hands without actually knowing for sure. So I think he was utterly comparing those two things as being the same thing. Mm. And that... Because I was like, ooh, hush. But he was mad. He was angry, you know? Yeah. You know, he was still processing it, you know? So another horribly kind of tragic thing I thought was Mulder realizing, like, his loss of realizing he no longer holds that position of being the Mulder that we know anymore because he's not the most useful one to Scully anymore. William is kind of taking his place. That's so sad. To see him, to me, he's talking about that he feels dismay that William, in the end, was the one who would be forced into facing the problem. Mulder was afraid he himself had let the family down by not being brilliant enough, after all, when it counted. And that scene where he comes up to kind of talk to Scully to try and reconnect, but she's there with William and they're having their discussion. In fact, this is right at the end of part one, I think, isn't it? They're talking, they turn away from him, you know, they're on the bed and Mulder just kind of drifts downstairs and they continue the discussion he's lost that position of being the team with her yeah the torch has been passed because yeah he's passed his prime really um it is sad yeah but that's why it's so good i don't know i like to be made sad i guess (laughs) (laughs) i want to feel something i do too i understand just how do you see scully's story ending because you clearly have it set up that William's got to be the one to save her, right? So how do you think he does it? Or don't you know? I don't know. You know, I assume they would think of something. Um, yeah. That's why he was studying physics. And, and who knows? I don't do that kind of sci-fi stuff. <laughs> I don't understand it. I was listening to the previous podcast that Kristen and Sarah and Annie and were speaking to you. And also, I think, a previous interview done. Perplexistan, yeah. Oh, it's Matt. And you were talking in both cases about this idea of, is it the Chinese painting where they leave a little blank uh-huh. space for the person who's looking at the picture to come in and bring their own perspective? Well, the basic format of, a, of an X-Files episode in the old days was to leave it open-ended, you know, so that ambiguity was hard to 
accept at first for me. Um, I was, you know, my twenties and, um, it was, was one of the most important lessons of the X-Files for me was learning to accept, you know, that things go either way, like a Chinese painting where there's just a blank spot that kind of pulls you in. So the ambiguity kind of pulled you into the story. And I can't remember what my point was. (laughs) We were talking about not having the answer for how was Scully not remain immortal. Yeah. There you go. And I like that. And that is perfect X-Files. I don't have a clear answer to that. (laughs) Just is like, I can't solve the problem (laughs) of immortality. I'm busy. I ask questions. I don't answer them. No. Yeah. But it was interesting because in, obviously, Felig himself was trying to take the pictures of death. And that was his solution. But he had to kind of like steal death. And then he saw his opportunity when she was shot. And um, yes. literally stole her death. But there was a lot yes. of speculation at the time that that bullet, which went through him and into her, gave her fertility back. And then she conceived William. Yeah, I remember that theory going around at the time that when she had been healed by becoming immortal, that everything had been healed. Yeah. Yeah, but obviously I think Scully is a person who she wouldn't countenance stealing somebody else's death. Like, she would not pass that right. on. So no. she would have to find an alternate solution. No, he was playing dirty, you know. She she would try not to do that to someone. Yeah, exactly. So I like that, that it's like, oh, it's not her just following the same path. She's like, oh, I'm going to have to problem solve this the Scully way. For example, he actually murdered a couple, didn't he? He murdered yeah, some people he did. in the beginning. <laughs> Mm-hmm. trying to catch up with death. There's so many things out of time in the piece. So kind of going with immortality and how Scully will eventually be like Felig, a person living beyond her natural time. Mm-hmm. And I love also the, just the nostalgia of all these things that are in their house. So Scully's armoire, Mulder's couch, the rug from his apartment that, oops, still has human <laughs> blood stains on it. That's great. I love that moment. She's going like, sorry, I was showing him how the equipment worked. Sorry, Mulder. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, the raincoats. Oh, I was really hoping that um, we would see the raincoats and we would get Scully's Darkness Falls raincoat in there. That was my wish. <laughs> oh. In my head, it's there. Are you kidding? Yeah, it would have been great. Yeah, she's like, oh, I can wear that to England. That's fine. <laughs> It's practically in fashion again. <laughs> I know. Can you imagine? I know. That would have been amazing. I know. I, hope, I keep hoping I'll see it at the thrift store and be able to get it, you know. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, somebody has it. Like, Sarah, um, doesn't she? What, I can't remember what her handle is. It's amazing. <laughs> fossils as well. We get a lot of, there's all these fossils, the trilobites. Mulder has the blue whale fin bone. We get oh, talk yeah. of Ishii living at the Museum of Anthropology. So it's, I like that you pulled all those things through. Yeah. Ishii is really interesting. Time. You know, he was the last of his tribe. Um, was yes. it the Yahe? Not Yahe. Yahi. Um, and mm. they literally just took him and he was living in the museum as sort of this living relic. And it was Ursula Le Guin's parents that wrote the book about him. Interestingly enough. He was another sort of like a castaway thing where he's sort of yes. stopped in time. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Which And it is sad. And But that's what Mulder said, isn't it? They used to like to think of him living there 
But now the thought of that wild and generous life caught among the dry relics struck him as depressing. <laughs> and that is sad. <laughs> that is depressing. Yeah. Oh. And of course, we get Lisa Simpson in her 33rd year as a second grader, which yes. I thought was interesting because I thought you took a punt back then that Simpsons would still be on the air. And it is. Oh, is that really? Well, it, yeah. it is. Yeah. You know, yeah. Simpsons was great, but it went on way too long. And then, you know... And it's still going. Is it really? Well, they're frozen yeah. in time. Yeah. You know, that family. She's always going to be in second grade. Yeah. Forever. Yeah. Wow. It's stasis. Oh, and I like the comparison you make with Mulder and Ishii, that Mulder, um, the last of his tribe, is the, uh, was it versed in the archaic ancestral art of VCR operation? The last survivor <laughs> member of his tribe. I didn't catch that, huh? that I repeated yeah. that. Yeah, Mulder <laughs> did know a lot about VCRs, but <laughs> he turned yeah. it to Channel 3 because you have to turn it to Channel 3. Yes. <laughs> right? I mean, Gotta who be would know three. this someone who had been there? It's wonderful to think of Mulder and Scully out of time as well. Like, they are 90s people. Yes. Living yes. now. They are. Plus their prime. I love... It's a bit of a meditation on time and the difference in the experience of time that Mulder has, which is a very mortal experience of time passing too fast. Jess, I, I've already talked to you about this, how astounding I found the line. He needed more time, really, but time was not something he could bend like hot iron into useful form. Time came at one like a sword and was passed which to me was such a reminder of the preciousness of time and the shortness of life that I do have it printed out and framed here behind me. So obviously that really spoke to me. Is that a little nerve-wracking thing? <laughs> it is nerve-wracking, but I need to rack my nerves because I'm too much of a procrastinator. It's but true. I, but that's so interesting that he, you know, for him, life is finite. He doesn't know when, but he knows it will be finite. Whereas for Scully, things are just passing too slow I guess but it's this thing about as we were saying that she's actually kind of wasting this time that she will actually lose them but in her depression in her despair she's missing out she's on the things out. that she's yeah. afraid of missing yeah yeah she's already treating time as like a chronic or life as a chronic condition which is and not enjoying really it sad. Much. yeah right but in the yeah. end does, does she take a moment to kind of recenter herself yes oh let's talk about the end so i was looking up immortal story precedents and i was uh, reading about gilgamesh so gilgamesh these what ancient mesopotamian tablets stories about gilgamesh who is he's trying to find immortal life but i think the moral of that story at the end there's like a, a bartender at the end of the world he says well, it's not going to happen mate the gods are immortal humans are not mortal but so she says, and I don't know whose translation this is, so excuse me, but it's fill your belly with good things, day and night, night and day, dance and be merry, feast and rejoice, let your clothes be fresh, bathe yourself in water, cherish the little child that holds your hand, and make your wife happy in your embrace, for this too is the lot of man. And that's so, gorgeous. So all these are about men, of course, but uh -huh. so no, that's beautiful. Mankind is universal. <laughs> Mulder becomes this character that Mulder is the one who is like wake up Scully this is it so he gets her to slow down and he's saying you know breathe in 
this is it. This is life. This is the experience. Yeah. So don't waste it. He's the only one that can do it. Like no one else is going to get her to be. I don't even think William could do that. Mulder is the only one that could get her, I think, to bring her back and to get her to do that. And I, and I loved that. I loved the end and how he was the... He's their anchor. The switch. Yeah. Exactly. Uh-huh. And I don't know that it necessarily works in the moment, but it's you get the sense of it in the text. To me, like that's the message. Uh-huh. Appreciate what you've got uh-huh. now. Which is his message for Scully, but I think it should, is the lesson for all of us. Yes. That time comes at one like a sword. It's definitely the message of Tuck Everlasting, too. I didn't really know how to end that story. And so, I, you know, it was basically just a slice of life. Here it is. And it's, you know, that's it. You just sort of draw your own conclusions yeah. from it. So, um, But I think that the slice of life part of it it functions for me as the text doing the same thing because it's like well in amongst this story where scully is suffering from depression and this awful shocking scene happens and we've got all this disconnection between Mulder and scully we do get these little moments to enjoy like tiny little scenes you know talking about them watching television in bed with the feverish child between them talking about them going on a road trip with William and he's like slurping with the ice and they're like, okay, could you just stop, please? <laughs> you know, and just eating dinner, like that lovely scene where they're all having the lasagna arachnid and teasing one another. See, it was really and... fun to just write all that stuff. I probably had to cut a lot. Yes. Those are my favorite parts. You do them so well, like that and like the borscht scene in Hoovelman's, Hoovelman's, we're never, I'm never going to get it right. No one knows what it is. <laughs> those are some of my favorite scenes. You have such a talent for for doing that, for writing those domestic moments, especially meals, I think. Oh, so well done to you. And party scenes, right? <laughs> yes. Love those party scenes, too. <laughs> There's that oh, fun yeah. to write, you know. <laughs> oh, but thank you, Casey. Well, but this was it. To appreciate them, like in the text, it's just, it's wonderful to live in those moments for a while what do you enjoy writing the most when it comes to x-files fan fiction what are your favorite bits to write as a writer yeah just where nothing's happening you know my favorite ones are you know where Mulder and school are just driving in the car and what they say to each other you know and i don't know why yeah just let them talk and you're they all surprise you you know so totally yeah that's it right there i'm not gonna write anymore though Oh, no. I thought, didn't you mention you might have a, an old cancer arc fix somewhere in an old email? I do. Never say never. Yeah. It's called Blue Ruin. Blue Ruin. Blue okay. Ruin. It was about Mulder stealing Scully from the hospital as she's dying <gasps> with a lone gunman and, you know, just sort of desperately taking her and they're like being chased and, you know, they're trying to come up with some kind of cure. I can't remember, you know, it's logistically a pretty difficult story. And she's, you know, on her last legs, you know, on an IV and all that. So it was pretty dramatic. Anyway, I don't, I don't really know how to finish it. So <laughs> yeah, it would have been fun. Wow. Make it a pass it on story. Pass it on to someone. Let them finish it. I love the cancer arc. It's really my favorite time in history. Yes. Yeah. You know, the Redux 2 era. It was so intense to live through it as a file. You know, we really thought she was going to die, or it seemed like she was going to die. It was just so poignant. 
I don't know why I never wrote about it. It's my favorite time. Never you say never. never. <laughs> <laughs> so going back to this thing about, as you say, just kind of Scully taking a moment and then talking about how Mulder is, I think, the one bringing her back to it. I think he's he's sort of trying to do it in small ways throughout, like when he brings the chocolate cake, doesn't he, from her favourite bakery. Oh, sure. So he's mad at her, but he's kind of tying her to the present through food which there is that little reference so you have him saying oh you know okay the kids are making lasagna matthew showed up with some bread and a bottle of wine and thou beside me singing in the wilderness which i was looking up then so edward fitzgerald the rubaillette of omar Khayyam. yes i was looking up a kind of analysis of it it's kind of about how bread and wine kind of tie us to the present because you're literally it kind of ties you to God it's like a communion with existence because you yourself if you're partaking of food that's you kind of being at one with the earth so I was thinking oh that's nice because it's kind of tying Scully it's like come back down like you're here you're alive eat she's sort of lost her religion by this point didn't she they don't really Mm. talk about it she crossed herself right before she did it which I love was such a scully touch. Uh-huh. Yeah, and William says grace. I mean, he flies through it, but he says grace. So they had that, a little bit of that, yeah. I was raised a Catholic. I mean, I'm not now, but that's almost like a, a reflux, that crossing yourself. I don't think she really thought about it, but she had to do it. When Mulder says that, thou beside me singing in the wilderness, in my head, I went detour. Oh, that's so cool. And that's like Mulder's personal communion with the divine, surely, is like his head in Scully's lap, <laughs> alone in the woods, in detour, even have her voice is terrible. And that comes back, of course, at the end. So you have them having a conversation. William's teasing Scully because he's like, wait, mum sang? What, was it with dogs howling for miles around? <laughs> in my head, this is the second detour reference. That's yeah. nice. So let's talk about sex. Okay. I'm about to start singing salt and pepper, sorry. (laughs) Yes, so I think for you, the physical communion of Mulder Scully is a preoccupation in your work, but it's always treated with such reverence that it completely elevates it above the level of, what is it, PWP. It's not porn without plot. It's not cheap. Well, it's communication. I think in in this particular sense, too. I, you know, I felt like I had to put a sex scene in, I think. <laughs> Give the people what they want. Well, it also just sort of happens, you know, when you get Mulder and Scully together, it's going to happen. So I like how you framed it, that he knew something was really wrong yeah. because of the way she was having sex. Yeah. And also, because earlier I was talking about all these symbolic, the little deaths in Scully's life. And I was like, well, hello, Le French, the little oui. deaths. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wait. Oui. Of course. Oui. So <laughs> this is where my thesis comes together. I, yeah, um, I didn't see that, but... Yeah. Mm. Just take credit. <laughs> but she's using it in a negative sense. She's saying, oh, she didn't want to feel invisible. She felt like when they're making love and he's touching her and looking at her that she feels like he can't really see her, that he's looking at her. He's touching three glass. There's layers, and yeah. She's desperately trying to claw back through that. And she's talking about felling and all the, the layers and him feeling so far away but she's she's almost using it in a negative sense she's not using it like she's trying to use it like communication but it's actually becoming more of a barrier because Uh of the way she's so panicked about it and he mentions 
the swimming pool or the lap pool to and it sounded like she was yeah a little aggressive so i can see yes. it going that way with her yes bitey and hungry he said and i love how that comes back that's one of the things i love about your writing that you don't just go let me write this tiny scene about okay they're, at, they're making love by the pool and this is how Malta's feeling and this is how scully is feeling it just comes in and this it gets mentioned once and you think oh yeah that sounds hot and later on it gets put in context that there's so much more meaning to it. Yeah, later on, she's thinking about she don't want to feel invisible. And she, what is it? She practically chewed him up a couple of times. And I thought, oh, okay, it's it's adding, yeah, more meaning to that scene that we got a glimpse of already. Yeah, I think it's hard for Mulder watching her go through this. And he's sort of taking the brunt of it, really. You know, she's going to take it out on him. Can't be easy for yeah. him. She's yeah. a difficult person. Yeah, and I'm obviously behaving in a selfish manner in ways at this time but then in that moment he takes the time to slow her down like she says right i want another one and he's saying no stop well he's a psychologist remember yeah an oxford trained psychologist not that anyone ever remembers (laughs) i was gonna say i was about to say the same thing which college did he go to (laughs) i don't know he's also terrified of fire let's let us not forget and he's colorblind (laughs) yes Speaking of which, I noticed today for the first time that, so Scully's looking at the couch and she says when they moved it out to California, she realized for the first time it was actually green. But later on, Mulder describes it as black. Well, it was a black, I'm sorry, it was a black couch. All those years, it was a black couch. It was. I think it was Luco Crystal put it on her live journal. She said, look, this couch is actually green because like in the sunlight, it looked green, dark green. Mm, so we mm. all felt a little betrayed, you know. I <laughs> I remember that. Just being like, wait, what? It was shocking, no. wasn't it? Yeah, his couch is a character, right? Yes. It's this character, and it was his black couch. And then you just went and changed. Yes, I yeah, totally agree. I was like, what? Do you think they did change it? Or was it just the lighting suddenly revealed? Nobody knows. Nobody knows. Either way, we felt gaslit by the damn couch. Uh-huh. But I like... That Mulder just thinks it's black because he's colorblind. I know. <laughs> I was like, oh, You're right, it I was see. Black to, to Mulder. <laughs> he can't see green. This is something I missed on the first time round, but I think maybe reading it out loud because I read it when I read it for the podcast that I really noticed how much foreplay there is actually before that sex scene. That there's so many just tiny, tiny moments. Where which you wouldn't even notice necessarily. It's just like, oh, a hand under the table or like looking at one another or when Scully's watching him hold the cake uh-huh. and looking at him with interest. Like <laughs> all these little tiny moments that you're like, oh, okay, I see what's building here now. Oh, um, that's just how that they are though. does not I mean, come out of nowhere. You know, I, I, I wanted to show them when they're actually married and they're just, they just be all over each other all the time, you know, right? They would. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Nobody's arguing with me. I mean, finally, they're living in a house together. So that's how they would be. You know, Mulder's very handsy. (laughs) Yes. And it's what they were always like in the series. And I think you've you've talked about this before, actually, just how, like, at the time, before anything had been made clear, and where you had the fierce No Rome and the shipper camps, that all you had to go on was, like, the finger brush Uh in Pusher. And stuff, and it's all these little he moments. He constantly had his hand on her back. I mean, they always stood too close. Yeah. So, I mean, they were kind of all over each other anyway. 
and they're always looking at each yeah. other. So, you know, just take it one step further. It made sense to me that they would be real handsy and real close. Yeah. And the kids kind of keep having to look away. Oh, I love yeah. that he's playing with her necklace. I mean, if you've ever been married, they always have their hand on your ass. I mean, it's just how it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank God. <laughs> it's cozy, too. Like, it's really nice to have somebody who can just walk by and you're doing the washing up and they just put their hand on your butt. So it is cozy and wonderful. And I love to think of Modra and Scully like that. It's just normal. I mean, that's that's normal life, really. And I also love how they have to wait for William to go out and they're like, okay, now it's time. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Reality. So let's come back to the ending then. We have this aspect of Mulder being very like, be here now, breathe in, this is life. But also, so I think it's really where we get this aspect of William, we suddenly get this focus back on William. And I think it's dual because you have Mulder kind of saying, look, appreciate this life. This is the Gilgamesh thing, isn't it? Cherish the little child that holds your hand. But also we're left with this picture of William will save you, that He's off to Oxford to become a world-class physicist at whatever college he likes. <laughs> and he's solving the problem with Scalia. But this is the blank bit of the painting that somehow William is going to save her. And I absolutely love the line. You know as well as I do that that child was a miracle and miracles happen for a reason. And then where we say Mulder's talking about enlightenment. In various mythologies, the standard of enlightenment meant learning that you had had that answer the whole time, that it was always right there in front of you. The answer was you. The answer was her. The answer was yes. I love that I moment love that. when um, she asked him to father her baby and the answer is yes. What episode was that? Yes. Permanum. Yes. That's what's so wonderful here. The calling back to that, that the moment of him saying yes to fatherhood is the moment of him, them or him like really seizing life together, this future that they're building, this family, this domesticity that they deserve, damn it. And that he's trying to get Scully to appreciate. William is the answer, not only for her future, but for her present. Yes. The answer has always been yes for those two. And, you know, when she first walked in the door and he tried to run her off, he was defensive and, you know, she just didn't let him do that. So they've always mm. said yes. It's always been yes. God bless him for it. <laughs> I think you really bring this out, Jess, in, in all your writing. So I was really listening to you, Contact High. I read Vesper's The Cretan Paradox as well. I was listening to you yesterday. And also in, in Wavelmans, I think you really capture that Scully is actually, like, insane. Her attraction to Mulder, <laughs> she's completely irrational. The things that she does to follow him, you just think, no wonder her father. Yeah, she let him ruin her life. I mean, look where she was going before that. She was going to be a doctor. Yeah. Um, even when she joined the Although FBI. technically... You know, she could have yeah. been a legitimate whatever. But no, she went to the basement, straight to the basement. Yeah. It is funny to me that because it's always, you know, that Mulder is the engine and Scully's the brake and that he's the one making all these rash and terrible decisions. But Scully has the curiosity of a cat and gets herself in these 
fucking terrible situations in which she cannot extract herself. (laughs) And that was always fascinating to me because she continued throughout the whole entire series Mm -hmm. to have the reputation of being the rational one, (laughs) not going off the cup, making the good decisions. And Mulder was always the one who was just, well, that fucking guy, there he goes again. But Scully would get herself (laughs) in these, because of her curiosity, I mean, she is exactly like a cat. It's so true. It's It's science. Yeah, it's not always for Mulder. She is fascinated by the work. Yeah, like when it comes to the science and all of that stuff, like, what are you thinking? Well, like Roadrunners. Right? And and like you say, Casey, just you think of her as like this, oh, she's so like straight-laced and like follows the rules. But then you think, what what is it like episode two or something where she's holding like the guy at gunpoint trying to get Mulder out of the base? (laughs) Right. Ella's Air Force Base. She's a nut. Right. <laughs> she is. She is. She's actually a massive rebel. It's just mm-hmm. against Mulder. Yeah. She looks like really straightless. Her brother hates that about her, too. Yeah. Yeah. Because she seems normal, but she's yeah. not. <laughs> if you look at her, she hides it, too. She does look normal from the outside, but she's Was not. it you, Jess, that coined the phrase her pumper truck youth? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Scully's misread Puppet Truck Youth, it's in this. Right? <laughs> I mean, it's always been there. So don't you think with with her sister, I, I imagine them, as, you know, when they were in high school together, they must have partied together. And I, mean, I know I did it with my sister, so. Yeah, same. I, I kind of see that they must have been a little bit wild in the whole Puppet yeah, Truck story. <laughs> Yes, and you talk about Nuevo Mons, don't you? Like the taste of defiance, like smoking the cigarettes. Right, she smoked her mom's yeah. cigarettes. Yeah, there's always an undercurrent of rebellion underneath Scully. It still mystifies me to this day how her reputation is not colored at all by it, but it's always there. Yeah, like never again is the real Scully. Yes, thank you. I think never again has more to do with Mulder than anything, but... It's like a communication to Mulder. But also, don't you think women have to hide desire or women have historically not been allowed to talk about sexual desire? So people kind of look at, they see a woman and they they just can't believe what might be going on under the surface. It's this invisibility. We just don't expect women to have desire and and especially someone of Scully's intellectual calibre that you wouldn't think alongside that. Still waters run deep. Why is it shocking when Mulder did the same thing in three, you know? Mm. Nobody cared about that. Mm. It's a double standard. Yeah. But I love how the way you interpret her actions around Mulder as such a giveaway of her complete irrationality when it comes to him. Mm -hmm. I think we've covered most of the structural territory that I was thinking about for Fathoms 5. But I do have further questions. By the way, I also want to say it's such a scream how they all watch X-Cops. And I know that was a symbolic thing about the Dorian Gray and the, the tape coming down from the attic. But it was also just hilarious. Oh, I, <laughs> I love that Tara Scully was the one that taped it. <laughs> yes, that's the best. I'm just imagining that scene of her being like, Bill! Bill! You would be like, what? <laughs> Can you see her being all excited? She would have been thrilled about it, you know? The best thing about X Cops, like the whole episode, is just Scully trying to hide behind the ambulance door. <laughs> Nothing is funnier to me than her being like, "Oh Christ, I'm <laughs> getting off camera." <laughs> oh yeah, that was she really gonna, oh, Bill's gonna see this. Oh God, again, <laughs> it's, it's Bill again. 
Absolutely brilliant. And I, this is what I love about the X-Files, that you can do something like that. And, but that is only funny in the context of like 25 other episodes being deadly serious about aliens and other aliens and black oil and what it's have really you. It's really wonderful. Casey, do you have any questions? Well, so I was curious about, because I, uh, I know you've read Teeth and Bone. I know you, you know her really well. Das Ding, she had pointed out at some point that it was sort of a tribute to Fathoms 5, that it was, in her mind, her continuation of the story. I'm just kind of curious how you feel about that. What similarities could you find? Because I could find a few. I think it was sort of part of the same conversation. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting to put it in sequence with Fathoms 5 and just say, well, down the road, this is actually how it is which is really depressing if you think about it, because that means William didn't succeed in whatever he was doing. I love that. That's really cool. It was really interesting to me because in Fathoms 5, his golden mean spiral, in the end of Das Ding, it's the whirlpool, yes. right? That uh -huh. ends up being the end. And I loved that. We'd have to talk to Teeth and Bone about whether that was an actual nod. Yeah, I, I agree, Next too. Episode. Yeah, talk to them and see. That would be interesting to tie that all together. I have no idea if that was the intention or not. But it, it works really well together, the two stories, if you think about it. It's, they really it's do. Yeah. Of the same subject. There's other stories on immortality also um, in the, within the X-Files. Have you read any of those? Oh, no. Would you recommend any? I can't name any offhand. But it seems like someone had a list of them. It could be Lilydale XF. Yeah, Lilydale would know. Annie Flowers, she has everything. Oh, she has a spreadsheet. Easily referenced, if you will. A spreadsheet, really? <laughs> yeah, fanfic by topic. That's cool. Here's a question. In Fathoms 5, Jess, I noticed that the language is actually quite pared back. It's a lot less literary than in some of the other things. Like, was that a deliberate choice given the subject matter? Oh, it was it was deliberate in that I'm trying to write cleaner and with less pretension. So yes, it was deliberate. I don't think I write like parabiosis anymore, do I? Hopefully. It's just too too purple. Yeah, so this is the beginning of you Oh well, I always love that anyway. Well, it's a little bit fine, but I was trying to mature, I think. Sometimes there's just, there's no word that's good. And if other than the obscure ones, is what I find. Well, sure, it's okay to use them then, but you can overdo it too. I think that was just maturity, Fiona. Okay. How does that compare to Wavelman's on the track, writing-wise, do you think? Is that about the same, really? Yeah, I think, yeah, Feathers 5 almost does stand apart slightly in being that, it is slightly different in its language. I was pretty chastened when I wrote it, so maybe I was really trying to tone it down. From criticism? Yeah. I would love to talk about, you had mentioned that it was not well-received. You've mentioned that to us in the past. Can you tell us a little bit about what was going on and your experience with that? Well, so my memory is really sketchy. Let's just start with saying that. But before that, you know, my stories had been well-received, and I was startled that this one wasn't. It was just the general mood, really. The fandom was falling apart. Actually, it had ended. So we were depressed. You know, <laughs> it was a rocky time. Yeah. And then it was a story, like you said, it starts off with a violent suicide. So everyone was kind of predisposed to hate it, really. I mean, I think some people thought it was okay, but it, it wasn't real well received and it kind of fizzled out. 
I always thought that it was a pretty good story. You know, I was proud of it in my own way. And it was probably the best one I wrote from that era. So it's fine. But at the time, yeah, it was kind of hard because I put a lot of work into it. I didn't feel like people understood it. Or they took the stance that, oh, she's not immortal. I'm not going to read that story. I don't believe that. Instead of just saying, well, let's just see what it would look like just to drop yourself into the middle of it and experience, you know, what if. Yeah. We're all just exploring. I mean, that's what fanfic's about. It's just exploring missed opportunities and all that stuff. I think at that point, Penumbra was kind of passe, too. And people were tired of Penumbra, uh, which is why I changed my name when I came back. I really didn't want to go on Tumblr. As Penumbra, I thought that I'd have all these enemies if I did. So Oh, that makes me sad. It's such a shame to me that this was not well received. Although I feel like it was like maybe too good. Yes. We shouldn't say that because I'm sure there were people that were nice about it. I know Wendela was. It took me a couple readings to really appreciate how much I loved it. It's right up there in the top probably three of my favorites of your work. Okay, yeah. And it's my number one. The more I go through it, the more I find in it. I really honestly think it's world class. Not even for fanfic, but just like as a text, as a meditation on immortality. But the thing is, it's it's niche, obviously. You can't just give it to anybody and say, oh, read this. It's like a fantastically intelligent, deeply moving meditation on immortality. It only works if you're in love with Mulder and Scully as well. You have to have that literacy of having seen all the episodes of knowing those characters so deeply in order to be so moved by it. But to me, that's what makes it so beautiful because it speaks so deeply to someone like me who's been so wrapped up in this world and with these characters since, what, 1994 or something, to carry that with me all that time and then to read something like this is just incredible. So it's it's a shame that it wasn't, I think, appreciated possibly in its time to the extent that it should have been. It probably is, yeah. But it is by me now, 100%. 150. Thank you, Fiona. So when Mulder says about I had a little sister, is that the first time he's telling William? Because it kind of sounds like that's the first time that information is being presented. No, he was just um, sort of stating it. I think it just hit him over again. And I think that Mulder had, had spent his life really going backwards, trying to find a little girl who was dead and... Scully and William were looking forwards, you know, trying to kill her in the future. So it's sort of these, they're kind of looking in different directions, really, if you think about it. Yeah, that's true. And what a story where the happy ending is that Scully will get to die. (laughs) (laughs) That's what's wonderful about it. I don't know, to put you in that mindset. Okay, here's a question. Jess, you're stuck on a desert island. You can only take three books. The question that they ask of Scully, what would you take? Oh, no. Um, (laughs) You did this to yourself. I would take some really, really long, like, Russian novels or something. I mean, just the longest novels you can find. Just because it's really hard when you have to read the same things over and over. I guess I'd take the Oxford English Dictionary, the OED. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it would be interesting. Would you find that entertaining, though? Mm-hmm. I would. 
But, you know, it'd be boring as heck, so. <laughs> Hopefully you could take a blank book, three blank books and a pencil that you could write stuff and erase it. <laughs> write your own entertainment. What would you take? I guess I'd have to take Fathoms 5 since I'm still finding things out about it. Oh, Casey is holding up the complete works of Penumbra. <laughs> yes, she had it bound into one volume. This would be one of mine. Does it have Wavelman's on the track in it? It does. <laughs> oh, I'm so embarrassed. That's funny. <laughs> Don't be embarrassed. This is what we're here for. I would definitely have to take some kind of X-Files fic, which is all of it a million times better to me than any of the published books that have ever been out. And I noticed so many of the books that are published are written by men, and it really annoys me that the men are getting paid to write substandard blah fic and so many women put hours and hours Absolutely. of effort blood sweat and tears into 100%. superior far superior work if you notice they only wrote those novels early on i think they had to give up at a certain point didn't they yes those ones yeah. like ground zero ruins goblins yes there's some short story collections as well i have a couple of those so i could trust no one or something else like an editor collection I could be mischaracterizing them, but I seem to remember, like, there's a lot of men getting paid to write these stories and a lot of women writing fanfic. Not getting paid to write these Not getting paid yeah. to write fanfic, yeah. I'm writing it better. But I guess then we can write whatever the hell we like. <laughs> I guess probably they wouldn't have published Contact High. Zero notes. Perfect. Just what I'm looking for. <laughs> so there was a bit in Fathom's Five Chess. I love the scene where Arabelle is asking, watching ex-cops and then asking Scully if they're going out. And Scully's like trying to pretend, I don't know what you're talking about. We have a professional relationship. And they're like, hmm, yeah, what was it William Bourne like really seen after this? It's so Scully because who cares? I mean, they don't have to hide it. <laughs> and she's instantly defensive. And there's literally a math equation sitting next to her. <laughs> I know. Irrefutable. He's like, she's obviously done the math, Scully. <laughs> There's a bit you say about holding hands with Mulder was still the best feeling in the world, just as nice as it had felt back in the Stone Age days when they pretended that holding hands might be something FBI agents did to comfort each other. <laughs> right? They were always holding hands. They really were. Yeah, this is totally normal. So I was wondering, well, I feel like I answered my own question by doing research, actually. We were talking about the season of secret sex and whether you were a proponent of it. But then I think I read somewhere that you wrote, I think this was on the podcast, that you said you wrote Parabiosis trying to prove that all things was not their first time. Yeah, I felt that it was like, Palace 5, it was like a slice of life kind of moment where it just showed that, you know, it already going on. And that was my feeling about that scene, that it was just something already in progress. In, in all things. Uh, and everyone took it literally like, oh, this is the first time. And I just thought that was wrong. So actually, I started my parabiosis to prove this whole point and turn into this huge thing. <laughs> I was watching the Tithonus Tithonus episode and I texted Casey. I said, oh my God, like they're so flirty in this. Like they are definitely already sleeping together in my mind, just based on the way they're interacting, like the unresolved sexual tension. The UST is no more. Right. Well, then, like, Skelly's so pissed off to be on this, like, FBI date with a new partner. Just so angry all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I 
And poor Mulder. What if in the way she like whispers to Mulder in the in the bullpen? And his adorable little we used to sit next to each other at the FBI. Exactly. They're so cute. Actually, I just before that, I skipped ahead, so I'm I'm on a very, very slow rewatch, and I just got to the movie, and, um, you know, seeing the kiss scene, like, the way she's looking at him there, where he moves into her, to me, I was like, well, there's absolutely no way they've done anything before that, just based on oh, Julie's right, acting. Right. Yes, yeah. But then, to jump from then to, like, mid-season six, I was like, hold up, <laughs> hold up, something has shifted. Well, yeah, after the movie... Don't you think somewhere in there? I don't know. But then they say after millennium. So I don't know. Well, that could be tricky. Yes, that could be tricky. Because he says the world didn't end. Well, and then Diana. Yeah. Oh, I love Diana. Like nothing makes me more <laughs> devastated than poor Scully sitting in the car. I like haven't seen them holding hands. She's shattered. I know. Ugh. So, Okay. Kind of starting to wrap up, I'm wondering about, is there any symbolism in this, in Fathoms 5, that we have somehow accidentally missed? Like, I'm wondering about the ducks, maybe, which seem to play a big role. But are there any major themes or symbols that we've accidentally skipped over that you can think of, Jess? No, not really. Uh Uh-oh. I think we hit all the big ones. I kept thinking about the ducks. It made me think of the Sopranos, which I know you've, you've also watched haven't you about uh-huh sure i love the ducks, ducks representing the family and oh you're right his ducks yes um his ducks represented happiness and family i there really was no reason uh okay but i liked it <laughs> that I could but it makes sense of. they were just cute ducks they were cute and here's a question did william feed the damn ducks <laughs> i don't know i no the ducks said no they were not fed. <laughs> <laughs> he did not feed the damn dogs. His parents caught him out in a lie and he and you double down. <laughs> he's, he's Scully's child. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but God, then right after that, though, because then Mulder starts, he talks in about the guy who thought he was immortal, didn't he? And drank the antifreeze. Oh. And I thought, well, that was a real dig at Scully, wasn't it? Because yes. he was saying, you know, he's only in his 40s. He had all his life ahead of him. Either way, if he was immortal or not. And then he drank the antifreeze. <laughs> so I felt like he was just having a go at Scully, like, well, even if you are immortal and you want to try this experiment, perhaps you could have waited. Yes. Because what if you hadn't come back? Uh-huh. You had mentioned that you kind of would like to go back to this and rewrite it a little bit and republish. Is that still something you're interested in? I want to move it to AO3, and I don't know if I'll ever get around to it. I was reading it on Gossamer, and it's full of typos, and that really bugged me that it's kind of a mess. So it does definitely need a redraft, but if I start doing that, I'll start rewriting it. And actually, Ooh. I like to put in those scenes that were deleted out. So Can we start a Get Fathoms on AO3 Patreon account? We would be happy to do that. That would be helpful at all. You're in charge. You can't get paid for fan fiction, so. Well, that's not what it would be for, would it? It's hard for me to justify the time, but I should do that. Did you say there were some deleted scenes? I have an old live journal from that time period, and there's a bunch of cut scenes on there. Oh, and you just posted them, like, as cut scenes? Yes. I just found the bonus content on the DVD. I'm so excited. <laughs> <laughs> On a podcast, no one can see Fiona's very excited face, but let me tell you, it's very excited. <laughs> we can put it, the link to that in the show notes as well. 
That's the thing that people say on podcasts. <laughs> we'll make that happen. Okay. Is there anything else you would like to say? I thank you for this. It was, you know, a difficult story to write. And I'm glad that people are still interested in it. I'm sorry that COVID rendered it obsolete, basically. <laughs> nope. Not at all. Actually, I want to believe rendered it obsolete also. So it is what it is. But thank you. It's just alternate universe, alternate timeline. I live there. I love living there. So... We're all happy to follow it. Oh, absolutely. I'll branch off into this parallel universe. No problem. Thank you so much for, again, like giving of your time to talk it through. It's just, it's wonderful to be able to do something like this, to really analyze it and dig deep. Yeah, it's an honor. Thank you. It was fun to look at it again. I hadn't thought about it in a while, so. Thank you, ladies, so much. This was absolutely wonderful. As always, a total pleasure talking with you both. Yes. What a treat. If you like this and would like to contribute, you can do so by going to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash audio fanfic pod. As a patron, you are granted early access to one new story of your choosing per month. Thank you for listening. And remember, the stories are out there. It's the darkest time